the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome everybody to episode 16 of series 2 of the Forward Together podcast. I'm Jared Dean. I work for Hollywood Trust. We produce this podcast on a weekly basis along with Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm as fine as ever, Gerard. Good stuff, good stuff. So, for this podcast, Paul, you had a conversation with Ian Marshall. Do you want to remind people who Ian Marshall is and why his voice is important? Yeah, in fact, a lot of people won't need to be reminded who he is because he's been in the the news quite a bit in the last uh, few days. Uh, He is the former president of the Ulster Farmers Union and uh, unprecedentedly, he became a senator in the Erectus in the South. Uh, He was uh, initially in a a by-election, elected onto the agricultural panel. Um, But in fact, when the new Irish government was formed, he wasn't appointed or elected to one of the places. Uh, We spoke to him after the election of places to the Senate, when I think it's quite clear he was hoping and perhaps expecting to be nominated by the incoming Taoiseach and other party leaders back onto the Senate, but in fact wasn't. And Mm. consequently, he has made some comments about how disappointed he was with not continuing on the Senate. Yeah, we better surprise that decision as well, I think. Okay. Ian talks about a lot of things, but I think the first thing you pick up from the conversation that he had is what he thought the perception might have been of uh, unionism in Dublin, if you like, but that he was pleasantly surprised that wasn't the, the cold house that he was expecting. Yeah, he certainly felt welcomed within the Erectus, within the Senate, the Senate, um, and enjoyed his time there. He was very pleased to be involved, but he does make the point that there is a mismatch of understanding that people in Dublin don't understand Belfast and people in Belfast don't understand Dublin. And I think that's one of the reasons why he wanted to continue as a senator to to break down some of those perceptive barriers. Mm. And and he goes on to talk about one of the the common misconceptions being that there's likely to be 100% support in the Republic of Ireland for a united Ireland. Yeah, I think anyone who believed that was probably a bit naive, to be honest. But yes, uh, you know, there's there's not been the conversation in the South about Irish unity, uh, just as it's quite in an early stage, really, in practical terms in the North. So there needs to be a conversation, as uh, Ian himself says, you know, there needs to be a conversation about where we go to in in the future. Yeah. Well, let's hear the full conversation that you had with Ian now. So just in terms of the background with you, yeah. you're a dairy farmer, you're president yeah. of the Ulster Farmers no, I Union. Was a former, dairy, former, former dairy, I actually stopped dairy farming four years ago, I still farm. What so, do you farm these days then? Uh, we have beef, beef cattle, so it's a, it's a beef, beef business. It, it, it's a, what you call contract feeding. Take livestock from another farmer and then I can pay them a fee to, to feed those, look after them, to house them and, and make sure they're, they're, they're cared for. And uh, as a farmer, you are, you've been active in the Ulster Farmers Union and you are president of the Ulster Farmers Union from 2014 to 2016. Now, the reason why we're talking, though, is the fact that you were also a senator. Until the, the, the recent election, you were a senator. Uh, and uh, I, I think you were nominated by uh, Leo Varadkar or approached by him, and then you were elected as a, in a by-election when a uh, vacancy came up on the agricultural panel. Talk us a bit about how that happened, what the process was for you to become a senator in the uh, the, the indirect house 
Yeah, well, I suppose the background to this, Paul, is that uh, actually, as much as I was involved in politics, it was uh, agricultural politics, so it was agricultural lobbying through the, the Ulster Farmers Union that I was involved with. The, the call came, actually, interestingly, from the Commissioner of Agriculture, Phil Hogan. I worked with the Commissioner in my term as President of the Farmers Union, so got to know him fairly well. And he asked me to expect a call from the Taoiseach, the Overadker, to see would I run or would I accept the nomination to run in the Shannon by-election. That, as you say, rightly so, became a, I was a vacancy uh, due to on health grounds from another senator. So I ran that, and it was a, a bit out of the blue because as I was never involved in a political party. I never directly involved in politics in Northern Ireland. So the opportunity certainly was something that I hadn't anticipated or you know prepared for. Did you enjoy it? Thoroughly. Thoroughly. Fascinating, fascinating two years. It's been two years where, and I always say to people that I have, I work in Queen's, so I have an office in Belfast that's 104 miles from the office I have in Leinster House. The reality is it's like years, Paul, in understanding. It's like years because the, the people in Belfast have very little knowledge of, of Dublin, of the south, of what goes on. And there's a, a, an equal lack of knowledge in Dublin with regards to Belfast, the people in Northern Ireland, the culture, which seems a bit bizarre when we're a small island and uh, we're, we're, we're neighbours, but that's just how it has been. And that's, I think, has evolved over the last recent troubles and recent period of, of conflict, and hopefully we're, we're moving away from that. Did you feel welcomed? Very much so. I was I was nervous in that. I was always told that the Dublin's cold house for unionism, and I was quite nervous about it. I was nervous about the perception, the reception I would have at home, and equally in Dublin. But it was certainly it was a warm reception. It was very welcoming, and it was very welcoming in the fact that I was told, "Look, you're a unionist. You're a Northern unionist. Be very proud of your identity. You're not here to be anything but but that." So from from the first day I set foot in Leicester House, it was very warm, very welcoming. But there has been some criticism from parts of unionism within the North. I mean, did that unsettle you? Uh, The reality was that that there was some noise from some individuals, but not very much. The, The reality of the situation was the vast majority of political unionism were very supportive. Privately, they were very supportive of me. They thought that we needed dialogue with Dublin, we needed a conversation, and that it should present no threat uh, to to Northern Unionists at all. So, as I say, the private conversations were very positive, upbeat, and supportive. What What do you feel you learned from the experience? What I learned is that we've, we've still a lot of work to do. We've still a lot of bridge building to do. I believe we're all, as someone who's turning fifty two this year. I'm a, I'm a product of the, the Troubles years. I, my opinions very often, as a lot of my colleagues, my peers, my friends and family have been formed by what we grew up in. But I think times are changing. I think that we're moving away from that. We're 22 years from the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. We're in a truly global marketplace now. There are huge benefits working together across an island, which is no threat or should present no threat to anyone's constitution. And I see huge opportunity. I see a generation of people coming on who've never experienced troubles, who haven't experienced the sectarianism, the bigotry, the hatred that that many of us grew up in, which is actually a breath of fresh air. And I believe that's the future, that the younger people who are coming on, who who don't carry this baggage, certainly don't, don't have the prejudices that many of the older generation may have. Certainly that's where the opportunity lies. 
As someone, you, you gather from my accent, I'm English. As someone from England who's lived here for 20 years, I've never quite understood the reasons why there's hostility within parts of unionism towards the idea of pragmatic relationships of friendship, north and south, and working together. I mean, is that something you can explain? Or is, do you understand why, why there is that resentment? Because as you say, it doesn't in itself represent a challenge to the constitutional position just by having good north-south relationships. Yeah, well, I, I'm not actually surprised. I mean, maybe that's a, a consequence of living and growing up in South Armagh, which was fundamentally a hotspot for, for a lot of the atrocities during the Troubles. And as, as you grew up in that, and, and actually when you look back in, in history, when you look back the last hundred years when we had partition and, and the formation of, the, of Northern Ireland, effectively what, what's happened over that period, in my opinion, is this is, this is a very complex history. It's a very complex tapestry and, and it was brought home to me when I first went to Dublin when I realised the the complexity of the relationship between the big parties, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Sinn Féin, Labour Party. So it's a very complicated mix, both North and South. I think when we look at Northern Unionism, I'm not actually surprised because Northern Unionism, anyone of my genre and older who lived through horrendous times, horrible acts of violence, horrible situation where there was distrust and mistrust between people. So our opinions have been formed by that. So this this notion of if you live your life in a in a in a goldfish bowl that tells you that Irish unity is imminent, that there is a, an appetite to reunify Ireland, that there is no place for unionists, then th- that that permeates its way through society. That creates that fear and mistrust and a lack of understanding. And remember when we've lived all the years through the troubles when we had the border and we had effectively two separate entities operating with very little cross, cross-border uh, trade and business and connectivity, well then therein lies your problem that that's built up over a long period of time. And equally on that I think it will take a, a period of time to rebuild and regain that trust and that understanding. Now, you mentioned just now the fact that there is this lack of understanding north-south and there are these misunderstandings. The, there is uh, a lack of clarity in the perception of each place about the other place. I mean, can you give us some examples about where those are evident? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's quite funny because uh, the, the interesting thing is there's a perception. Remember, a, a lot of the counties south of the border who lived for many years very much disconnected from Northern Ireland, not affected or impacted realistically by the, the recent troubles. So when, when I first went to Dublin, uh, you know, and I, and I spoke to a number of people, they said, oh, you're, you're a Northern Unionist. We assume a number of things about you. And I said, well, no, that's not right. And we, they thought you were very conservative and you wouldn't take a drink, you wouldn't have fun, you wouldn't go to this, that and the other, you wouldn't do certain things. I said, no, that's, we're, we're actually a very open-minded bunch. We're not at all conservative. We're outward-looking, forward-looking. So I think there's there's a lot of misconceptions about Northern Unionists. And I think equally so, the, the misconception that I pick up in, in Northern Ireland about the South is that there's this appetite by everyone to have Irish unity. Because certainly there are many, many Irish Republicans who want to strive for and, and fight for Irish unity which they're perfectly entitled to do. But equally so, there's many, many people south of the border who say, you know what, not at the moment. And I think the best analogy, Paul, was someone in, in Leicester House actually said to me that the Irish unity question was a bit like heaven. It sounds like a really good idea, but we're not ready for it now. So 
you know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions that we need to break down, a lot of the, 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 the myths that have evolved over the years that that tell people in Northern Ireland that there's an appetite in the South to regain, as they tell me, the fourth green field. That's certainly not the case. This is for many people, for most people actually, about building and uniting people across the island because that in itself presents no threat to anyone's identity or to their constitution. And it sounds as if, from what you're saying, that you perceive that a lot of people from a unionist background in the north see the south as being populated by individuals who supported uh, physical force republicanism, whereas people in the south, to a large extent, see unionists as being represented by Ian Paisley. Is that that a sort of a a caricature that's not too unreasonable? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, And I think that's what... Because the interesting thing is when I've brought groups of people from Belfast down to Dublin, down to Leinster House, invariably they've come away and they've said, well, the people were really nice, they were really good, they were really friendly, really sincere. And I would say, well, what did you think they'd be? And the converse of that is when you bring people from Dublin to Belfast, they go, the people are lovely, the city's great, it's a nice place to be. And you say, well, why did you think it would be anything else? So very often opinions have been formed by snapshots of, of news and misinformation. And it's not actually a true reflection of the people or the geography or the culture that, that people think. So how can we spread a, a better understanding of the two places? Well, I, th- I think from a personal perspective, this is, is about uniting people. And the way you unite people, you unite people is to bring people together. So that's by virtue of organisations or sport. Classic example in sport is rugby, because rugby has presented a platform where, irrespective of whether you're from a, a nationalist background, a unionist background, a loyalist background, or a republican background, everyone go and follow the Irish rugby team. It presents no no confliction for anyone, or, or it's, it's, it presents no threat to anyone's culture or identity. And if we could follow that model for actually something that unites people as, as well as, as rugby does, we can replicate that through other parts of society. So I think this is about uniting people, about uniting young people, getting schools to work together. Businesses already work together. There's a huge all-island economy, which can be so much greater. And I think that we need to do that in conjunction with an acknowledgement that North-South relations are hugely important, but equally so are the East-West relations because those are important as we go forward, looking at how we build two islands working together. Yes, I mean, that certainly is the conclusion that I came from in terms of the work I've done around Brexit, that actually we shouldn't be looking at whether we want a continuation of North-South relationships or East-West. We need both, especially given the weakness of the economy in Northern Ireland. Yeah, we, we, we certainly do. And it was interesting because I did something recently, uh, an interview, and there was a conversation about the history of Ireland. And when we look at the history of Northern Unionism, it's about a history where it's about defending our place, defending Northern Ireland's position, defending the link with the Union. And we look south of the border, and south of the border, the history has been about gaining freedom, gaining independence, gaining freedom from, from colonialism. It's two different histories, but actually... The, the complexity of the relationship and the dynamic north-south and east-west is hugely important. And I've often said that had the island of Ireland been in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and had got its independence, I have no doubt that Britain and Ireland would be strong allies, good friends, working together. There would be very little or no contention. But by virtue of the fact that it's geographically neighbour and, and it's culturally so close, 
that actually that has created some tension from the partition and from, from Ireland gaining its independence. And when we're talking about how you unite people and spread understanding, one of the things that's been said to me in the past is the frustration people have with the separation of the different media, North and South, and that the fact that RTE doesn't cover very much about the North and the BBC doesn't cover very much at the South, actually that's one of the barriers in terms of people's understanding. Is it, Do you think there's something in that? Yeah, I, I, do, I do think there's something in that, and it's, and it's interesting because if you follow that logic through something else that I witnessed in the South is that actually there's a lot more European news, mm. and a lot more engagement with the rest of Europe. It's interesting because when I travel around Europe with the work within Queen's University, every member state I go to, the national flag hangs, hangs beside the European flag. And the UK was the only country that that didn't actually happen. And it was an interesting concept because there's much more of a connectivity between Ireland and Europe than there ever was between Northern Ireland and Europe. And I, I think that, you know, that that has presented us with a number of challenges. But I do think the media have a huge responsibility here because very often the snapshots of news that permeate from Dublin to Belfast or Belfast to Dublin are negative and, and depressing. And actually there's lots of really good positive things going on that, that unfortunately don't get reported. Now clearly Brexit is hanging over us and this touches on this, or more than touches on this issue about the future of the economy in Northern Ireland. How do you think Northern Ireland businesses and economic leaders should see the, the, the situation going forward with Brexit in terms of how they form new relationships both with Great Britain and with the South in, in, order, in ways that, to, that strengthen our economy, both in terms of agri-food and, and the rest of the economy? Yeah, well, I, th I think it's going to be critically important that we do carve out uh, and build strong relationships both north, south, and east, west. And I think we're in this unique position where, because of because of uh, the arrangements agreed under the Good Friday Agreement, that we're going to have an advantage in that we can be trading with and close to Europe, but still retaining our closeness and our trading partnership with the GB market and, and as part of the UK. And I think that the interesting part is that some of the numbers that have been banded about over the last couple of years have been about uh, the volume and the levels of trade east and west and north south. The interesting thing is probably the quantum of trade east west is greater than that north and south. But the complexity of this comes because the number of transactions, the number of businesses that trade on a daily basis across the border and the importance of that north south trade is equally as important as the East-West. So it is a complicated situation. I think from a Northern Irish perspective, this is about ensuring that we retain all those channels of communication and channels of trade. It's important. We've got to acknowledge that we only have 1.8 million people, but we have, a, we have a reasonably strong economy. We have a good workforce. We have a highly skilled workforce, highly motivated workforce. And if we look at building links north and south to build the all-island economy, in conjunction with, with uh, furthering those trade links in the relationship with the UK market, and certainly there's a bright future for the province. Yeah, and I'm very impressed, I must say, by the relationship between CBI and IBEC, and that does seem to me to be a basis for how you create stronger north-south relationships that are pragmatic and actually, you know, genuinely useful. Yeah, and I think what, what the 
Brexit conversation demonstrated for three years that, that if you move off the politics and you go to business people, business people are pragmatists. Business people get what needs to happen. The business community saw very much from an early stage the risks and the threats that Brexit and especially a no-deal crash of Brexit will present. So it's no surprise to me that, that IBEC and CBI are engaging and talking. It's no, no, no shock to me to learn that the business community gets the importance of this. And the business community ultimately will find ways to ensure that those links are A, established and B, developed. So, you know, I think business will be key to ensuring that, that we have good, strong trading links with, with everyone. And as you say, one of the things that's often ignored is the fact that the number of transactions north-south are significantly greater than those east-west, even though the, the volume in, in currency terms, in, in financial terms, is less. And the big question then is, given the difficulties that there's going to be in trading with Great Britain in terms of the bureaucracy of doing that, whether we can build the north-south transactions to be of greater financial value. I mean, do you think that is something that can be built on? I think there's possibly an element of that. I think what actually will happen in this situation is where trade is easiest is, is where trade will, will, will migrate to. Yeah. So if, if we find a situation in this Brexit scenario that it becomes complex and difficult to trade with a partner in, in Birmingham or Manchester, and there is a market for that in Cork, Limerick, Dublin, wherever, then businesses will actually say, you know what, this is A, more profitable, and B, makes more sense, and that's the way it will follow. So I think a lot will... A lot about what this will look like will determine where the trade moves to. Trade may stay as it is, it, it may remain exactly as it is, but, but we're going to have to wait until we see what flushes out of the, the protocol, what the deals look like, what the trading arrangements are like, and then you know businesses will very, very quickly find where the opportunities are, where the advantage is, and where the disadvantage is. Now, you've got a really useful understanding of the political institutions and the relationships of political levels that you've built up over the last two years. How do you intend to use that going forward now that you're not in the Senate? Uh, well, I have, you're right, I have, I, have a, I have a fantastic insight now, both from a northern perspective and a southern perspective. I think what, what, I've, what I've learned very much in the last two years is the importance and the value of an upper house. Now, the interesting thing is that we have a Senate chamber in Belfast, in Parliament buildings, we used to have senators, interestingly, and I think that there's huge value in reinstating an upper house. And the reason I say that is because I've watched and I've been been lucky enough to, to be around Westminster to see how Westminster houses, lower house of the Commons and the Lords function. I've been for two years to see how the Dáil and the Shannon function. And actually what you create in that upper chamber is a, a scrutinising body. It's a governance structure. It will cross-reference it will check legislation, it will perform a task of scrutinising the legislation and bills that come before it. Very often what I've witnessed in the last couple of years is that contentious, difficult legislation coming from a lower house gets to an upper house where people with integrity and maybe not a vested interest and not as partisan or party political can interrogate that, that, that bill or that piece of legislation, can table amendments and amend it and change it and nine times out of ten, when that goes back to the lower house, it's acceptable to all parties. So there's huge value in having an upper house. I believe that if we're going to move Northern Ireland politics forward, we need to create a platform where the green and orange politics that invariably will, will remain, at least for a, for a period, in that lower house, can be diffused in an upper house. And we can start and, and, and pass bills and laws and legislation and use an upper house as a 
as a mechanism to drive good governance, good government. And it sounds as if you don't feel that the fact that you didn't get back in through election, it doesn't reflect badly in terms of North-South relationships. No, I, th I think when you go back and look at the, the, the system and how the Senate election functions, actually, it's no surprise. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of people, interestingly, very, very strong, very solid, very good people who didn't and weren't able to return to the Senate. So it, it's no surprise, it's no reflection of North-South relations. I think if you take the analogy of someone from, from County Cork or Kerry stood as an independent in East Belfast, there's certainly probably little chance of them getting elected. But... Uh, you know, and, and we're kind of there. So it's absolutely no reflection of the relationship. The relationship between North and South is very good. I know that there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes, building business, building an all-in economy, and not with any consideration to affecting or, or weakening any constitutional position. However, you are in a unique position in terms of having a perspective on how we have the conversation about the constitutional future of Northern Ireland. So what do you feel you've learnt about how that constitutional conversation needs to take place? The first thing is exactly the point you make. There needs to be a constitutional conversation. And I think the difficulty for political unionism, and I understand completely the difficulty, is effectively the conversation has been presented in such a way as this is a conversation about Irish unity. And the analogy I draw on that is it's like going to turkeys and asking turkeys to have a conversation about Christmas dinner and what stuffing they'd like. Because why on earth would a turkey ever get involved in that conversation? So for me, the unity conversation needs to be open, transparent, and, and, and let's keep open minds. Because actually, we need to flush out what, what the Irish unity situation would look like, what the maintenance of the UK union would look like, what the island, how it would perform and function, what way this would affect education, healthcare, society, how would businesses function, what would, what would things look like, would we be ultimately richer or poorer? And I think in the absence of that conversation, it's actually a very dangerous conversation to have as a, as a let's talk about Irish unity and nothing outside that. I think you need to have a full and open conversation about all scenarios. You need to present all the information to the people. Let people know what it would look like. Let people judge whether they will be richer, poorer, better or worse. And then, and only then at that point, it's perfectly reasonable to ask those people to, to take a vote on that. And of course, there's a parallel conversation that cannot really be ignored, which is the future of the United Kingdom. Uh, because there are simultaneously different pressures. There are pressures from some that leaving the European Union creates the opportunity for a more centralised state with more powers vested in London, and there are people within government that would seem to want that, while on the other hand, irrespective of the conversation about the future of uh, Northern Ireland and its relationship with the South, there's also pressures for greater devolution to Scotland and Wales and also to Northern Ireland. So I think that conversation can't be avoided either. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and ultimately, you, you're correct in saying that there are things outside our control that will happen with Scotland, with Wales, which ultimately will impact the, the, the trajectory for, for Northern Ireland or what the future will look like in Northern Ireland. So I, I think that, that is fair and reasonable to say that. There's, there's no question. But I, I do think that what we've demonstrated is that Brexit has highlighted some of, some of the weaknesses that we have. It also actually highlights some of the strengths we have. But certainly that conversation about the, the future of the UK uh, may be to, to some extent out of our control, but it's certainly 
it's a conversation that's happening. It's a conversation about unity that is happening, that the unions need to engage and unions, I feel, need to start selling merits and the attributes of the union. And I think, you know, we have a situation that's very topical just at the moment with COVID-19. And in Northern Ireland, we've demonstrated that the National Health Service has been very effective, has worked very well. We, we have a healthcare system that's free at point of delivery. Huge, huge benefit about being in the UK. And and I think that, you know, those are the conversations we need to have on the, on the, on the unity topic about what this would really look like. And I think it would be risky, if not dangerous, to go to people to ask them a position on Irish unity without or in the absence of the full knowledge of what this would actually look like. But one of the other conversations that I've had with some people within this series has been around the fact that, in a sense, we don't have the policy conversations and the, the, uh, the theoretical policy conversations in Northern Ireland that there are in other parts of the United Kingdom, so that we don't really ground out the thoughts about what sort of place do we want to have, how do we create the best value for money in the way we administer the state, and then perhaps we we need to be more willing to have open-minded conversations about how to make the best of the place we are in. Yeah, and I and I think you know we we look at the Northern Ireland situation where actually much of our politics has been built on fear and insecurity. Mm. So it's the, the fear and insecurity of the other side are going to get better than us, get bigger than us, be be more effective than us, and and that works both ways. And I think we need to move away from that fear and insecurity, we need to focus on politics that's built on security and confidence in your identity. The fact that you're, you're proud of your identity, you have feel not, you don't feel threatened to, or any threats to your identity. And that once you go there, then you find that actually you can have a, a, a grown up mature conversation about the future, about those policy conversations that remember 99% of which do not consider or, or touch on constitution. So the policy conversations that happen that affect everyone in their life and ultimately determine whether they're richer or poorer don't actually threaten or affect or even touch on constitution. Ian, thank you very much indeed. That's a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you. Okay, thanks to Ian there for having that chat with Paul. Paul, found it really interesting that as well as talking about the constitution situation, one of the things that Ian was saying was that unionism in general needs a conversation perhaps not about a shared Ireland or whatever that might look like but what's the future hold for unionism as what does it look like within a union or within a shared Ireland yeah in a sense perhaps in saying there needs to be two new conversations one within unionism within Northern Ireland about what it wants in terms of the future what relationship it wants to have with other jurisdictions how it sees itself within the United Kingdom in the future um, but then there's another conversation, really, uh, as well, which is um, the fact that pragmatically, unionism needs to reach out and to receive, to engage with people in the South. And one of the points Ian makes is that there are very good linkages in the business world. Hmm. And, and it, you don't need to have a bad relationship with your neighbouring country. It just makes sense to do what you can together for the benefit of everyone. Yeah, and and I suppose he goes on to strengthen that, and even within a Northern Ireland context, saying there's a lot of conversations we could be having based on policy and on things that are really important to people that aren't necessarily controversial or based on our identity or the constitutional issues that we should be getting on with. 
And I think that's one of the themes of the, the various conversations that we've had, Gerard, is the fact that people across the piece actually want us to deliver better. And really, the, 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 the fears around identity haven't figured very much in the conversations we've had with a, a people across the different backgrounds. There's a desire for things to be better. Mm. Um, and ident identity doesn't need to mean that you don't do things well or be competent. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Paul, for taking the time to talk with Ian. And thanks to Ian as well for taking part in that conversation and being so open and honest about it. Thanks to our funders of this project, the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland and Eamor Doherty for production support. Remember to share and subscribe where you can and tell people where to get this podcast. It'd be great to have even more people hear it. And we'll talk to you again soon. Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.